This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again, Sam Chandon. Welcome back to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Sam Chandon. Well, there has been little relief for Americans hoping to enter the market for homeownership in recent years. Tight inventory has continued to push prices higher. At the same time, mortgage rates have been climbing. The result has been a widespread erosion in housing affordability in the United States. According to the NAHB Wells Fargo Housing Opportunity Index, home affordability currently sits at a 10-year low. With me to discuss the outlook for home building and what it means for listeners who are thinking about buying their first home, amongst others, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Dietz. Robert is Chief Economist of the National Association of Home Builders and a recurring guest on the Real Estate Hour. His responsibilities at NAHB include housing market analysis, forecasting and industry surveys, and housing policy research. Prior to joining NAHB in 2005, he worked as an economist for the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation. He has testified before the House Ways and Means Committee, the Senate Finance Committee, and the Senate Banking Committee on Economic Policy. Today, he is talking to us about housing affordability. Robert, thanks for joining me again on the program. Absolutely. Good to join you. The NAHB Wells Fargo Housing Opportunity Index shows affordability is now at a 10-year low. First, tell us a little bit about what the index is measuring uh, and whether this decline uh, that it's picking up is about prices going higher or or whether there's more to it than that. So the index is a a survey that we've done with uh, Wells Fargo since the early 1990s. It's a a 0 to 100 scale. Uh, and basically measures the percent of new and existing home sales that are affordable at the nationwide basis, and then we do it for local areas. But uh, the share of new and existing home sales that are affordable for a typical family, so a, a typical income based on standard underwriting criteria and current interest rates, current home prices, and current incomes. And uh, not surprisingly, the, uh, the the index actually declined during the the housing boom as the uh, price appreciation occurred, and then it climbed, <laughs> making uh, markets more affordable uh, right after the Great Recession with the uh, home price declines. And it actually peaked at a level of 78, meaning 78% of transactions were affordable for that typical family in roughly 2012. And what we've seen in the years since then is kind of a slight erosion in affordability, uh, particularly due to the fact that we had sluggish single-family construction and uh, resale inventory was tight. What we've seen recently is the fact that you've got both higher interest rates and ongoing price appreciation, which we normally view as, as good news for the housing market, has really pushed down housing affordability. And as you said, we're at a 10-year low. So our most recent reading had the uh, housing opportunity index at a level of 57, meaning only 57% of those transactions were affordable. And that was down from the first quarter at a level of 62. And we've we've simulated it out. If uh, current trends continue, uh, it will hit a level of 50 over the next two years or so. So those things that we've talked about in the past about uh, supply constraints, they are now having an impact because economics 101, less supply means higher prices. 
Right. When we're looking at some of the factors that are driving the the, the opportunity index, you described you know mortgage rates, uh, you know incomes, uh, prices. Uh, are there useful rules of thumb out there that people can be thinking about? How much of my income uh, should I be spending on you know my mortgage and and housing costs uh, for it to be sort of reasonable, sustainable, affordable? You know, from an economics point of view, you're talking about basically a third of, of typical budgets being spent on housing costs. And so obviously when prices go up and interest rates go up, uh, you can bid a smaller price uh, to purchase homes. I think one of the interesting things is that if you think about the things that are forcing affordability down recently, uh, price gains and higher interest rates, the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage has been kind of in that 45 4.6% range uh, roughly since April. Uh, so it really hasn't been higher interest rates, although they have risen with uh, the presidential election and then with the enactment of tax reform as the, the 10-year Treasury bond went up. But it's been those price gains, the lack of inventory that has really reduced affordability. And, you know, you have a lot of variability, of course, market to market uh, are our least affordable uh, market, according to the index, is San Francisco, where only 5.5% of sales are affordable for a typical family. So some markets where it's harder to build, uh, you're going to pay the price in terms of lower affordability. Right. It's extraordinary that the statistic for San Francisco, that such a tiny percent of uh, the overall transactions would be attainable or affordable for, uh, for, for families. What are some of the other markets where uh, you know, we see that kind or that degree of erosion? It's a lot of concentration in California, unfortunately. In fact, uh, if you look at, uh, for example, smaller housing markets, not just the big one, the five least affordable smaller housing markets are all located in California. Uh, for a number of years, it's been San Francisco and Los Angeles trading places uh, as the least affordable uh, markets in the country. And there you've got the combination of uh, uh, geography, uh, but also policy decisions that make it more dif difficult to develop land and build housing. And the result is that uh, that affordability measure goes down. And then if you think about the economics of this, uh, what does it mean for population growth and home building? Uh, some of the hottest home building markets in the country right now are in states like Montana, Utah, Idaho, and Colorado. And those mountain markets are essentially benefiting from the fact that markets along the West Coast have inc become increasingly unaffordable. Well, when we think about sort of the supply constraints that you're describing, they're not being sort of the, the level of building activity that we might think of as being uh, appropriate uh, or that would help us to preserve affordability. That comes you know, right back uh, to your wheelhouse. What uh, would you describe at a national level, apart from some of the local policy decisions, but national level, what are the biggest things that have been constraining home building activity this cycle? Well, if you ask builders nationwide in almost every single market over the last four years, the top constraint on their ability to remodel more homes or build more housing has been the labor shortage. Uh, currently, we've got about 260,000 unfilled construction sector positions. That's a cycle high and measured as a share of the industry's workforce. Uh, it has been higher than the peak unfilled job rate during the housing boom more than a decade ago for about two years. So uh, we've got an ongoing labor shortage. Uh, it's, it's part demographics and an aging workforce. 
It's part legacy effects from the Great Recession. We, we lost a million and a half workers in the industry. And then there's some things that the industry can do better on. Uh, labor productivity in residential construction has been flat for the last 25 years. So there's some opportunities to, to build more homes with newer techniques, modular construction, and the like. Now, I said labor was the top one. There was an exception. Uh, for the last 18 months, we've seen a real roller coaster ride in lumber prices. Uh, it was set off by essentially 20% tariff rates on Canadian softwood lumber. And we get about a third of the lumber used to frame single-family homes and low-rise apartments from Canada. And when a, an agreement with the, the Canadian government expired, uh, it immediately affected lumber prices. And then it was built upon by a rail car shortage, uh, some infestation issues, wildfire issues, other kinds of supply shocks. At one point over the summer in 2018, Framing lumber prices had grown 63% since the start of 2017. It was adding about eight or nine thousand dollars to the price of a typical single-family home. Uh, the good news is, in the last seven or eight weeks, some of those price declines have eased off, although we're still about 23% higher than we were at the start of 2017, and that is adding thousands of dollars to the construction cost of homes. So. Labor issues in terms of access and the availability of, of workers, uh, ongoing lot access issues, lumber issues, and then the, the growth in impact fees and other kinds of regulatory costs mean that just as housing affordability is declining and buyers are becoming more price sensitive as housing potentially consumes a larger share of their budget, that means that builders have less pricing power available to deal with some of these higher construction costs, and it does set up a kind of an interesting dynamic over the next two years where uh, the, the market's going to be tight on both the, the supply and the demand side. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Dr. Robert Dietz, Chief Economist of the National Association of Home Builders. We're talking about home building activity, the lack thereof, and what it's uh, meant for a decline in affordability uh, in the United States. Robert, you, you mentioned um, you know lumber prices and you know the, quite a roller coaster with the price movements you were describing. I'm Canadian myself, and uh, I'm uh, acutely aware of how sort of you know, the dispute over softwood lumber tariffs seems to have been a thing that has just it's it's generational, um, and so it may not be going away anytime soon. But um, you know, without wading into the politics of it, when we think about the, the sources of potential anxiety for us in the real estate market, uh, the, the you know the, the current trade environment, the potential for you know, some of our current disputes to uh, become uh, unmanageable. How relevant is that for uh, the housing outlook? It's, it's really relevant because right now the, the key concern is the ability to add that new supply. Uh, so, you know, we call them tariffs, but they're essentially taxes on U.S. renters and, and home buyers. And the, the lumber issue, as you said, it is generational. It dates to the early 1800s. We've had multiple rounds of these disputes. And kind of an interesting political tidbit, they, they, this lumber dispute exists outside the usual NAFTA agreement. So, uh, maybe getting some resolution to what the, the trade rules are going to be like uh, with the new NAFTA or whatever we're, we're going to call the new agreement. Uh, we'll have to see, one, if the Canadians join us, uh, but two, 
uh, does that then clear the decks for the ability to get a new softwood lumber agreement, uh, which we could use some predictability and uh, that ability to reduce the, the cost of accessing Canadian lumber. But it's not just lumber. Uh, the larger trade issues are in play, too. Uh, the steel and aluminum tariffs have boosted prices for steel and aluminum used for apartment development. And then if, uh, if the goal of uh, some of the, the uh, tariffs on, on softwood lumber is to increase U.S. domestic production of lumber, that's going to require more mill capacity. Well, of course, that's going to require steel and aluminum as well. So uh, we've done some estimates looking at some of these uh, product lists that are going to be subject to tariffs. And what we found is there's about $20 billion of goods uh, that potentially could be subject to anywhere between $1 and $3 billion of tariffs uh, that are used either directly in home building and apartment construction or appliance construction or tools. And so these tariffs will have an impact on the cost of new housing and then therefore be a factor in terms of how much housing supply. And then, of course, we have to keep in mind that uh, local markets would be affected by any kind of tit-for-tat retaliatory uh, issues where, uh, for example, in soybean markets in the Midwest, it could have a, an impact on local incomes, local jobs, and therefore housing demand. Yeah. Well, to go back to the labor uh, issue for a moment, so we've got this significant shortage in, in labor. We've got lots of unfilled positions that must be exerting upward pressure on um, you know, wages and salaries in, in residential construction. Why do we not get more people than moving into residential construction? Is it uh, lags and inefficiencies in the functioning of the labor market, uh, or is there something else going on? It's, it's partly cyclical and partly structural. The, the cyclical effect is, again, the legacy effects in the Great Recession. You had a, a large number of workers who left the industry, and many of them are simply not coming back because of the experience of the Great Recession and the housing downturn. So they they found work in other sectors, including energy and transportation, uh, where the skilled blue-collar trades exist. Uh, it's, it's also structural. So we've done surveys of 18 to 25-year-olds and ask their opinions of working in various sectors, making careers, becoming small business owners in various sectors. And, and construction did not test very well. And traditionally, uh, the trades are where you get your future leaders, your future business owners in construction. So if people are not entering the trades at a younger age and choosing instead to work in office environments with computers that doesn't involve seasonal or physical work outside, that becomes a recruiting challenge. Um, it, it's partly connected to immigration, although the share of non-native-born uh, workers who are in the construction industry has basically remained constant over the last 10 years. Uh, so the real challenge is being able to recruit native-born uh, Americans into the construction industry. That's a long-term effort. Uh, it's going to require the industry working collectively to do so. Those efforts are underway. And, uh, you know, that's, that's going to take about a decade to fix. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, the industry will also have to become more productive, uh, build more homes, remodel more homes uh, with a smaller workforce. And you're beginning to see some hints of that. I, I think there's the potential to exaggerate some of the potential for growth there. But uh, just as an example, modular construction, where you build most of the home in a factory, 
it represents only about 2% of single-family starts uh, today. And so there is a potential to grow that market share and capture some production efficiencies where you're building parts or most of the home in a factory environment and then transporting it out to the eventual home site. I don't think it will be a, a large share like we see in Europe because we have a whole variety of building codes and it's, it's difficult to build at scale for that kind of environment, but it could help. And if we build more components of housing and factory and do less of the assembly at the work site, that could be one way that we get some of these productivity gains. So that's how we're going to have to address the labor issue going forward. Yeah. Do we see other markets around the world where maybe uh, th there is a more significant part of uh, residential construction uh, that, that is modular, that it would give us a sense that, you know what, those uh, productivity gains are possible, you know, th th there is the potential for a market to actually uh, you know, leverage modular construction technology to greater effect than we have so far here? You do, but in some cases, they're the exceptions that prove the rule. Uh, so you see very high shares of home production being built as factory-built housing. Uh, and we're not talking manufactured housing here, you know, what people often call mobile homes. We're talking about homes that if you drive by, you would look at it and say, that's an apartment building or that's a custom home. Uh, those shares tend to be quite high in countries like Ireland and, and Sweden. The challenge is that those countries also have national building codes and they have more national rules and national-based markets, and, and then geographically they tend to be smaller. And so those kinds of economic environments are better suited uh, to getting a higher concentration of, of home construction being built at the factory. So I do think that 2% share is going to go up. Uh, there's, there's companies that are engaged in that process right now. I think that will provide a benefit to builders to find alternative ways to frame homes at lower cost. But it's probably going to be highly regionally concentrated, and uh, I don't expect to see a 20% you know, share or higher uh, in that kind of environment. But every little bit is going to help. And given the, the number of challenges that are limiting housing supply, it's going to mean attacking on all fronts at the same time. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Dr. Robert Dietz, Chief Economist of the National Association of Home Builders. We're talking about home building activity uh, and what the lack thereof has meant for housing affordability in the United States. Robert, when we're looking at what has gotten built in the single family space, you know, I imagine you know that there's two pieces to this market potentially. You know, you've got folks who you know, are in their homes uh, and maybe you know, seeing what's happening with prices are opting to you know, remodel or expand. Um, and then you've got folks who are uh, thinking about home ownership on an aspirational basis and looking for opportunities to become homeowners for the first time. Uh, and it's with that second group. Have we been building for them? We have. And in fact, if you look at sub-markets within residential construction, particularly on the, on the single-family side, and think about all the challenges that I identified, the, the lack of lots, uh, the labor challenges, uh, the, the need to build more productively, which could involve some kind of density, the one sub-market that sort of checks all those boxes as a success item is townhouse construction. And uh, we've been saying for years we expect it as the millennials moved from rentership to home ownership, meeting those aspirations that you identified, uh, that townhouses, particularly in high-cost metro areas where you have job creation and income growth, that kind of construction will really succeed. And to just give you some data, over the last four quarters uh, in the U.S., we started construction on 116,000 townhouse units. 
Well, that was a 23% gain over the prior four quarters. So in other words, that market is growing three to four times faster than the overall single-family construction market. And it's the confluence of demand and supply. Uh, the demand is there in terms of the generational need, a uh, slightly smaller home, slightly higher density, more walkable, which meets some of the consumer preferences. And then it's good on the supply side in the sense of building with density helps lower costs, uh, requires less land to be purchased. Uh, and in those communities where they zone for that kind of construction, uh, they're going to be able to house the younger workers and be able to grow in population terms. So I'm really bullish on that kind of growth being able to continue. And I think it identifies an area where we can add supply profitably and at cost uh, and meet those housing affordability challenges that we started our conversation with. Yeah. So are, are there markets uh, around the country where that, that we can point to to say, hey, you know what, here's a location where in thinking about how to make housing more affordable for their citizens, uh, they've approached uh, you know, policy zoning um, you know, in a way that uh, you know, has led to you know, some really good outcomes that we could potentially replicate elsewhere? Yeah, I think a good example would be some of the parts of the D.C. suburbs and in Virginia where you do see townhouse communities that are close to transit that offer the opportunity for a highly educated, uh, relatively high-income uh, population, but younger, uh, to be able to purchase a home and establish roots, and, and that works well. And, of course, you know, it's not just uh, high-cost metro areas where this can be done. Uh, the example I often give, and you hear of uh, cases where this is happening, if it's the case that we're going to have a certain amount of shopping malls, uh, go vacant uh, because of the Amazon effect. If you think about what a shopping mall is in terms of its footprint and uh, access to transit and transportation, that is a perfect place to build an urban village where you mix retail with townhouse, maybe some low-rise apartments. And I, again, I'm very bullish on that kind of development taking place as the millennials who, in terms of their peak age or in their upper 20s, move into their early 30s have kids get married and look for those ownership opportunities. So I'm feeling more optimistic about this now uh, than I was going into our conversation about the opportunity index. Uh, there's actually some some good news here with with you know townhouse construction, you know you know targeting to you know that first time home buyer potentially. Uh, big picture, then, what does that mean for us with the housing opportunity index? Uh, it's been deteriorating. Uh, can we anticipate that outcomes are actually going to improve over the next couple of years? Well, so the, the footnote to that, and I'll take your optimism away somewhat, is that those kinds of outcomes can occur where local communities zone for them. Uh, and often the case, whether it's NIMBYism issues or uh, exclusionary zoning uh, policies or setback requirements on, on how close a home has to be to the street and so forth, uh, th that kind of development can't take place. And so if we think about the broader trends, which is we expect interest rates to continue to rise, the Fed is going to raise rates two more times this year, continue to do so in 2019. Uh, price appreciation will continue, although it is slowing. We did expect that this year somewhat as a, a tax reform outcome, but it's occurring now because of affordability concerns. All of those things, along with slightly faster income growth, which we saw in today's labor market report at a 2.9% year-over-year rate, they all kind of point to continued deterioration in housing affordability over the next two years. So, 
you know, we can make policy decisions that will enable housing supply to be built uh, at uh, reasonable construction costs. Townhouses are, are an option, but so is entry-level single-family detached housing at the urban frontier. Uh, you see a lot of large national builders working at those entry-level. Uh, but again, it's, it's how much do you make it cost to build those homes, and that can be determined by impact fees, delay costs, other kinds of regulatory requirements, which when you add them up can add up to about a quarter of a home's final sale price. Uh, so we've got it in our hands. If we can pursue the right policy outcomes, you can see that growth in the, the residential space. We have just under a minute left to shift gears really quickly. You mentioned interest rates. Uh, I know the market listens closely to your views on this. Uh, what are your expectations for, let's say, mortgage rates over the course of the next year or two? So we have it continuing to rise. We, we do think we're going to see a 5% 30-year fixed-rate mortgage over the next 12 months or so. Uh, again, I, I'm more concerned about the growth and the price uh, than some of the, the rises in interest rates. But taken together, they do point toward declining affordability. And if you're a, a buyer looking to buy, you should take those factors into consideration that uh, we are in a kind of a timing cycle right now. And it's probably going to be more expensive to buy a home 12 months from now than it is today. Yeah, and I think uh, for both uh, you and me and other folks that have uh, been around long enough, we know that at least in nominal terms, uh, you know, rates by an historic standard are, are still very low. Absolutely. It's, that, it's hard to get that message across when people hold mortgages that begin with a three or a four. But yeah, if you look compared to the early 90s, let alone the, the early 80s, rates are historically low. It's really kind of an inventory challenge. I'm being told I have to cut you off there, oh, Robert. Sorry. Thank you so much for coming back to the program. Absolutely. That was Robert Dietz, Chief Economist, National Association of Home Builders. That is all the time we have for today. So thanks to both Dr. Dietz and my first guest, Eric Larson, Chief Executive Officer of the Downtown Detroit Partnership. Our show will be repeated throughout the week. You can read more about the Real Estate Hour and our other shows and hosts on the SiriusXM website at SiriusXM.com slash business radio. Real Estate Hour is produced by Patty Hall, who's also Program Director here at Business Radio. Danielle Bruno has run of the house on the soundboard. And I'm your host, Sam Chandon. Thanks for joining us. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 